Hello and welcome back to season two of Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Medin, and I'm so excited to be back hosting our second season of this podcast. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a different guest and chatting all things fertility. As always, our hope is that through this series, through honest conversation and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. This week, we are going to be continuing our discussion on male fertility, which is a topic that unfortunately rarely gets talked about. I'm going to be speaking with Professor Sheena Lewis, who is not only a highly regarded specialist in this field, but who is also the CEO of Examine, a world leader in male fertility testing with over 25 years experience in the field of male reproductive health and fertility treatment research. Welcome to the podcast, Sheena. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. There's nothing I like better than talking about male fertility. I've been doing it for years and I'll just have the greatest pleasure in talking for another 20 minutes about it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, so perhaps you could just maybe um, tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you got into this space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm a professor of reproductive medicine, and I've been working in Queen's University, which is one of the Russell Group uh, universities. You know, the, the the sort of top top universities in the UK. And um, we we started working by freezing embryos. That was the you know the very first thing we started to do. And then we thought there's nothing for men. There really is. And inviting men into an and uh, into a, um, a maternity hospital where there's no andrology lab and there's nowhere for them to go and they feel really embarrassed and really conspicuous. We should do something about that. And at that stage, 25 years ago, I had a very um, a very visionary professor, Billy Thompson, and he said we should set up an andrology lab. I said, well. I'm ready. Uh, let's let's do it. Let's do it. It's a great idea. So we set up one of the first andrology labs in, in the UK. And this was a space for men. So we had a private room for them to go and produce their samples off a quiet corridor, not a mainline corridor where, you know, someone was standing, knocking on the door, embarrassing them. And um, we had a, a quiet waiting room for them. And then we had a big lab, which was just completely for um, semen samples. And that, again, was a, a you know, huge step forward because it used to be that if a man was going to produce a semen sample, he would take it to a, a general hematology lab in a general hospital. And all of those samples would sit on the bench until the end of the day, until all the important blood work had been done. And then um, the semen samples would be looked at at that stage. But of course, by that stage, the motility had gone off. The samples had got chilled. You know, it was a very, very poor way of measuring a man's fertility. So when we set up this dedicated lab with little incubators, and as soon as the man produced his sample, it went into an incubator and we treated it with, you know, kid gloves and looked after it and measured all the motilities and the morphologies in the right order. And it gave a much more accurate measurement for men who were having this sort of gold standard first test that men do uh, to see if they've got if they've got enough sperm and if the sperm are swilling, swimming, excuse me, and if they're, uh, you know, they've got nice structures because the egg does like a good looking sperm. It does, it does. So um, after after you set up this this first, this initial lab, how did that then turn into what is now Examine? Yeah, well, it was, it was an interesting journey because it wasn't what I had intended to do at all. I mean, I was first and foremost a professor. So we used it uh, in association with the, the health service in Belfast and all the men who were coming through to, to have their tests done 
uh, the university said, would you like to get involved in research? So over those 25 years, we published loads and loads of papers. And of course, men were extremely interested to get involved in research and to be center stage and to be involved in the whole couple journey because it hadn't happened previously. But for a very long time, I found it hard to get a better test than the semen analysis. And of course, the semen analysis was set up in the 1940s for stud animals, for bulls and rams. It wasn't really you know, designed for men. Yeah. And we always knew it was limited. It's the first test. Yes, we have to do it, but it's not the best test. And there were other things that we thought were very important. So over that, my career, I examined haha, lots of other <laughs> different tests to see which ones were the best. And the one that came up again and again and again was DNA quality. And that's not surprising because the DNA is the most important thing a sperm can have. It's what makes the child look and act like his or her dad. So it doesn't matter how many sperm you have. It doesn't matter how well they swim. It doesn't matter how gorgeous their morphology. Once the one sperm um, fertilizes the egg, it's the quality of the DNA, which is going to make a clinical pregnancy, which is going to prevent a miscarriage happening, which is going to give a healthy baby. So we looked at uh, DNA quality of fertile men, infertile men, men who'd um, had vasectomy reversals, men who had diabetes, all sorts of different issues. And the same thing happened over and over again. DNA quality was a really good diagnostic test. So then I had a very good PhD student and he was an Indian chap who didn't drink alcohol. So instead of all the Irish ones that we usually have who nip off about half four to get to the pub, this guy <laughs> didn't do that at all. He, he was nocturnal. So he came in at lunchtime. He hung about until the very tiny dregs of any samples were left over in the uh, IVF lab at the end of the day. He worked all night. Then he went home to bed, came back the next day and did it all again. And at the end of three years, we had a massive amount of data. Mm. So we published some of it in uh, American Fertility and Sterility Journal, and we published some of it in Human Reproduction, which is the big European journal, and Reuters picked it up. And then when that happened, lots of, particularly women, started to email me and say, can we have the test? And I was going, I haven't got a test. This is just something I do, an academic thing. And then I thought, this is crazy. We really ought to be providing this test for the public if that's what they want. And it, you know, it's something that we, we almost had a, a moral duty to do. Mm -hmm. So at that stage, I went to the university and said, um, could we set up a, a, a company? And they went, yeah, all right, go away. So I, I kept knocking on the door for about a year. And then they said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And how long ago was that? Uh, 11 years, 11 okay. years. So, so once you got the green light to go ahead with the company, um, how long until you actually had patients coming through the door? Oh, well, we, we had to go through all sorts of regulatory procedures. We first we set up in a, a tiny corner of a pathology lab in the university, but um, a, probably about a year. And then in a couple of years time, we'd expanded what got our own staff and we, we moved out into our own purpose built labs. And last year we doubled the size of the labs here. We're in a, a business park, which is very easy for and um, for people to come and go and for our suppliers to arrive because a lot of our samples would come shipped in liquid nitrogen from Harley Street and from um, the whole uh, medical area in London and they all arrive in liquid nitrogen at our back door and then we have the samples frozen and we thaw them out and do all the tests on them so it, it, it works beautifully but setting up a, a, a startup company is a, a long and painful procedure but anyway very glad I did it and we're now beyond the startup phase and we're in the scale up phase and we're we're doing lots of things and we've got big plans for the future. 
Amazing. Um, so in terms of uh, a, a semen analysis and a DNA fragmentation test, mm-hmm. what is the difference? And, yeah. and why would you do one over the other? And would you do both? Well, I think you should do both. Mm-hmm. I absolutely think you should both. You should do the first one because the, the first thing a man needs to know and his partner needs to know is, does he have sperm? Mm. and um, something like about 5% of men don't have sperm, but the vast majority do. But they want to know how many sperm they have, and the the the, the big image of a, um, a sperm that has good health is it's swimming nicely. So the, you want to know the sperm motility, as it's called, how well the sperm are swimming. And then also, as I alluded to earlier, you want to look at the morphology. Are the, are the sperm structured properly? Because that gives an indication, again, of sperm health. So that's the first thing you need to do. But that is, is not the only thing you need to do, because that just looks at the outside of sperm. You know, you count how many you have, you look at the, the structure outside and you see if they're swimming. But it doesn't tell you anything about the genes they have or the genomic integrity or whether or not that sperm is going to lead to a clinical pregnancy and again to a live birth. So the two should be done hand in hand. So in terms of what causes fragmentation, um, mm-hmm. if that's the correct term within within the DNA, um, is it the same sort of stuff that causes low motility and poor mo- morphology? Is it is it the same thing that causes the fragmentation or is it slightly different? Well, that's a very good question. I just call it damage because I think it confuses mm. people when we, we talk about fragmentation. The reason why we talk about fragmentation, by the way, is because if any of you have done biology at school, you'll know that the DNA is made up of a double-stranded um long tube. kind of tightly kind of coiled exactly. yeah. yeah and when it gets snapped that's what we call fragments because they're little fragments that fall off so um is it the same well i don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called oxidative stress yes even our sperm can get stressed and there there are oxidative stress is the one thing it's free radicals which you you get as you get older you get if you get a little bit overweight you get if you don't do enough exercise you get if you've got a really bad diet you get if you smoke you get if you take too many recreational drugs all of those things called cause oxidative stress and that stresses our dna now sometimes you can have a perfectly normal um semen analysis in fact you know, 30% of men who go along for infertility investigations are given a diagnosis of a thing called unexplained infertility, where their semen looks absolutely perfect. But if you then subject that same man's semen to our test, you'll find that half of those men have got DNA damage, which is invisible. You know, if you're just looking down the microscope, you can't see it. So you have to go for a molecular test that really drills down to see if the DNA is of good quality or if it's damaged. And is it reversible? Is damage in the DNA reversible? No, it's not reversible in the sense that whenever the sperm becomes mature, it turns off all the mechanisms to repair itself. So no, it's not reversible. But here's where men are very, very lucky because men produce new sperm every three months. Yeah. Now, unlike women who get their eggs when they're before they're born mm-hmm. and the older woman gets the older her eggs become when she's 20 she's got 20 year old eggs when she's 40 she's got 40 year old eggs not so with men they produce new sperm every three months so even if a man is a heavy smoker or he's overweight or he's been ill or whatever and his sperm are badly damaged if he changes things in his lifestyle mm-hmm. then he can improve his sperm quality 
Now, the other thing that he can do is he can go to see a urologist. A urologist is simply a doctor who looks after men's reproductive health. Can be a man, can be a woman. But as opposed to a gynecologist who looks after all the female problems, a urologist or an andrologist look after all the male problems. And very often men have little varicose veins on the testes, which are called varicose seals. And I'm doing a big study at the moment where we're looking at the effect of these varicoceles on DNA quality. And it's actually quite surprising. Now, let me just go back and tell you a tiny little bit of simple science. So why are the testes outside the body? Because they like to stay cool. Mm -hmm. So they're at about 35 degrees outside. If you tuck them up inside the abdominal cavity, if you were a dolphin, for example, or some other species, um, their testes are inside the body, but not so with men. But the problem is, if you get varicose veins on the, on the scrotum, on the testes, then they get warm because all this warm blood is being pumped around the body and it heats up the testes and it, the sperm don't like it. And that can damage the sperm quite a lot. But if the man has a simple little outpatient procedure to remove the varicose vein, then within three months or six months, his sperm can be of much better quality. So there are a number of ways in which a man can both by his own lifestyle habits improve his sperm quality or with the help of a doctor improve his sperm quality. So it, there's, there are definitely things he can do. Hope is never lost. There are always things that can be done to improve the situation for men. And are there any other um, like, um, you know, illnesses that that one might have had in, in childhood or any other kind of sicknesses, infections, that sort of thing that that would cause damage also? Absolutely. I mean, our health and our egg health or our sperm health are very, very closely associated. Mumps is the one dreadful one mm. if a child's got mumps. Not only can he get, you know, a very swollen face, but he can also get a swollen scrotum and that can have an effect on his sperm when he becomes an adult. Yeah. Diabetes has a very poor effect on, on men's sperm because again, it, it produces a lot of glucose. The glucose isn't taken away by insulin and you get all this um, oxidative stress within the blood and that affects yeah. the sperm yeah. as well. Um, there are a number of different things that, that can actually, fevers can cause, you know, damage. Um, and a lot, a lot of medications can actually um, be problematic. Yeah. So it's always good when a man is having um, fertility treatment to talk through with his family doctor what it is he's doing. And the reason I say this is because the older we get before we wait to have our children, the more likely we are to be not as healthy. Yeah, and to be lots on different meds and... Yeah, lots of people in their mid-30s or late-30s are on a whole range of medications mm. for various chronic illnesses. Sure. So it's a good idea to check that all out with your family doctor so that they say, oh, well, I don't think you should be on such and such a thing because mm. it can actually cause damage. Yeah. Um, funny, it's, it's a good thing that I'm not a man because I both had the mumps and have diabetes. <laughs> so if, if I was, um, chances are, you know, that probably would have affected things. Well, um, you can monitor your diabetes and you can be yeah. very careful. And obviously you're very slim and very fit. So you're, you know, you're, you're looking after yourself very well. Yeah. It's the people who, you know, who don't. That, that the, kind of, uh, the, the kind of out of control diabetes, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you might not know the answer to this question, but is there any um, research into the effects of, of COVID or, 
on DNA fragmentation or damage? Yes, there are there are quite a number of studies. It's terribly difficult to talk about COVID as if it's just a single thing that happens to people. I had, I had COVID a couple of weeks ago. You know, two years, none of us in our in our our lab here had had COVID, and then suddenly one person got it and it spread like wildfire. Mm. So what did I have? I had the shakes and the shivers mm. and I had a high temperature. Now, what would it be that affects a man's sperm? Would it be COVID? Would it be the high temperature? Yeah. Would, would it be the medication he's on? Would it be that he, he isn't eating for a week? Would it be that he's got a dreadful cough and chest infection? So it's terribly difficult to isolate COVID and say sure. that's going to you know, cause a problem for your fertility. We certainly do know that the vaccines do not damage people's fertility so that's no reason not to be vaccinated mm. okay um in terms of you know so do you get a lot of uh, couples coming to you privately as well as working with various fertility clinics throughout the country sending you samples so you do get uh you know private couples coming directly to you is that is that right um, well, both. Yes, we do work with, with, with fertility clinics. Yes, we do work with urologists and they send patients to us. Mm. Yes, we, um, we are setting up direct to the consumer um, services. And yes, we have set up a semen analysis service here in Belfast because at the moment, because of COVID, um, there's, you know, clinics don't have as many patients as they used to have. Mm. There's an absolutely shocking um, um, headline in the news today talking about 570,000 women aren't able to see a gynecologist across the UK because wow. because of, of all the waiting lists. Wow. So um, there's a there's a there's a real dearth of services. And yes, we absolutely do need to have semen analysis as well as the DNA testing. And I'm delighted to be working with you in therapy because you are all over the place now, and that's just wonderful. <laughs> and you're so needed, so yes. needed. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just wondering because, you know, obviously we're running this male fertility fortnight. We're talking mm -hmm. about male fertility for solidly for two weeks. And it's it's really hard to get men to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and do you do you notice that like are, are men coming to you for this test or are they being dragged along? And, you know, how do they feel yeah. about that? You well, it's that, not yeah. half as bad as it as it as it used to be. I mean, it used to be it was such a taboo subject, and men were mortified because they thought if they had a low sperm count, it made them less of a man or it made them less virile. And that's absolutely wrong. You know, this is an illness. This is a condition that you get absolutely fantastic, big, muscular rugby jocks who've got low sperm counts. Mm. It's yeah. there's no relationship at all between a man's sperm quality and his prowess as a man. Yeah. So we've been, you know, trying to get that message across for a very, very long time. And I think things are changing. There are quite a lot of chat rooms now for men mm. and men seem to be much more relaxed about talking about them. It's also in the news all the time, you know, that one in six couples have problems and 50 percent of the problems are male problems. Mm. So a man need never think that he's an odd one out now. There are lots and lots and lots of people who are just like him. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a guy, a comedian called Rod Gilbert, who was uh, on BBC, who did a, um, a series called Talk Tackle. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, making all these jokes and, and everything about men, why men wouldn't talk about these things. And I think he has opened up the, the topic so that it, it's even, you know, it's even something you can talk about in the pub with your friends. Now it's not, yeah. you know, yeah. the final taboo anymore. So I think things are opening up. The other thing that I am desperately keen to do is to talk about couple care. 
So that when a man is in the clinic, he is being treated as a, a human being, as a person, just the same way his partner is. And he's not just the sperm donor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, I mean, it used to be, you know, you'd have, you know, Mrs. Smith. And then on the back of Mrs. Smith's fertility chart, there would be her partner. Yeah. And it didn't even matter who he was. And that we cannot do that. We must treat men. We must look at their clinical histories, as you were talking about, clinical examinations, talk about men's lifestyle, treat them as you know, as, 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 as partners, as equal partners in this, because 50% of the issues are male and 50% are female. And if we want to improve the success rates of IVF treatment, then we have to treat both partners equally. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, with the um, addition of ICSI to like the toolkit of, of the fertility clinics, it's almost been a, a bandage on on the, yeah. the male fertility issues because it's like oh well if if, if the sperm is not good we'll just do ICSI whereas it, you know it, it should be so much more than that you know mm-hmm. well I think it should and I think if we can optimize a man's sperm health before he has IVF or before he has ICSI mm. we can actually make the success rates better mm. and we have to admit that we've had ICSI now for what 20 odd years and it hasn't been the you know, the miracle, the success that we thought it was going to be. We thought, you know, there would never be another problem once we used ICSI, but it's as good as IVF, but it's yeah. not any better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of if you were speaking to a couple who comes to you mm-hmm. with uh, DNA damage in the sperm, what would be your advice to them? Well, it would depend on what the issue was. I mean, some people come because they just want to have a fertility check. Hmm. Maybe because they want to see, you know, will it be okay to have children in the future? And that's a win-win situation because you say to them, if their sperm's good, they say, fantastic, just keep doing what you're doing. If it's not so good, you say, well, you know, what are the issues in your life? And you make them start to think and take control and take Mm -hmm. responsibility. If it's miscarriage, and now we we know, and there are new European guidelines are coming out in a couple of months' time, showing that there is a very strong association between sperm DNA damage and miscarriage. Mm. Now, we didn't think that in the past. 2012 was the first time we ever really published the fact that there's such a strong association. We assumed if a man got his partner pregnant, then anything that went wrong thereafter was a female problem. That is not the case. So if you're talking miscarriage, I think men are hugely relieved to have found a problem. It's not that they, they're embarrassed about it. It's they're delighted to find a problem so that they can take control. Mm. Because the thing that men, I think, like the least is to be emasculated and to be left powerless. But if you say, look, you've got DNA damage, but here are five things that you can do. Come back in three months and see if it's improved. They are all for it. Mm. Yeah. And, and if they have a, a problem with the DNA damage, we always refer them to urologists to to and and they're going to be they're going to be urologists in Ireland now like they're never were before so this is all quite an exciting future but this is so important to take care of men in their you know on their own as well as 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 women and of course the 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 results that we give to them they can then take those to the fertility clinic and it can help them with their fertility doctors to you know, to plan their treatment and see if the fact that the man's DNA damage is going to make a difference to the journey that they're going to take. Sure. sure. Okay. Final question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and something that I love asking all my guests is, um, what is the favorite part of your job and, and why do you do what you do? 
Well, the favorite part of my job is when someone sends me a picture of a baby. <laughs> and I go, oh, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a granny and I've got a I've got two grandchildren and I absolutely love children. So that's one of the reasons why I do what I do, because I know what heartbreak it causes for people. And the thing that upsets me most is when, you know, maybe a man, a couple come and they say, we've had five miscarriages. Mm. And then they check the guy out. Well, if somebody told them about our test a long time ago, they wouldn't have gone through all that heartbreak and probably enormous expense. Mm. Why do I do what I do? Because I think it's so rewarding. Our whole team. They just skip into work. We had a terrible time during COVID. We didn't close down. We had shift work. We worked at six o'clock in the morning to two o'clock. Then another lot came in at half two and worked mm. at 10 o'clock. Another lot worked on Saturdays and Sundays. We are absolutely committed to helping people because we see an enormous need and because we think we can do something to help. Yeah, that's amazing. And can I just say um, thank you to you and to your whole team um, for for doing what you do and for providing this service because um, you know as you said there's it's few and far between um, providers who are specifically providing this service for, for for men so thank you oh it's an absolute pleasure <laughs> thank you very much for talking to me and um, I'm really excited I'll be on LinkedIn all the time finding out what you're doing over the next two weeks amazing thanks so much okay all the best bye We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility podcast. If you have, please rate, review and subscribe. For more information on therapy fertility and the services we provide, you can visit www.therapyfertility.com.